the entrepreneurs, you know what their reaction was? Holy we finally have a Silicon Valley in Canada. This is incredible. And that is what went wild on us and why we just swept the table on all of the great opportunities at the time in Canada. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Hey guys, great episode coming at you today. I had a conversation with John Ruffalo, investor, private equity, venture capitalist extraordinaire. How John got into venture is actually a really interesting story on its own. He was the founder and CEO of Omer's Ventures back in 2010. Now he's running Maverick's Private Equity, focused on a whole different side of the market. Really exciting. And in the middle there, we didn't even have a chance to get to it. John had a near-death experience, but he is back as sharp as ever. Uh, Hope you enjoy the episode. If you're into venture capital, investments, you want to understand what happens behind the scenes and how the sausage is made, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Let me know what you think at Real John Davids on Twitter, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. Hashtag making it. Let me know what you think and enjoy the show. John Ruffalo, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you've got uh, such an interesting story for many reasons, and hopefully we can get into uh, a few of the stories over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. I want to go back to Omer's Ventures, 2009, 2010. The way you got into this industry, I was just uh, kind of reading all about it, is really fascinating. Can you talk about how you became uh, a VC? Pretty much out of spite. Uh, because I was a pain in the ass to the pension fund industry. So sometimes you uh, you get what you ask for. So very long story short, I was uh, the global leader of Deloitte's technology practice the, and the Canadian leader. And in particular in Canada, after uh, you know the dot com crisis, and particularly after the financial crisis, venture capital industry in Canada was completely dormant. Um, our Canadian companies here were struggling, and I was working uh, largely with the federal government on public policy matters on how we could stimulate venture capital, because it was very clear to me that the private sector uh, capital could not regenerate itself. And it really needed government stimulus. And there was a number of ideas that that we developed, promoted. But one of the ideas was going after the Canadian pension funds that held so much capital and that they were not investing it, frankly, in Canada and certainly not in startups. And so I was promoting a pension tax so that if you didn't do the right thing, uh, the federal government would impose a 1% tax of your capital and it would go into a fund. So, you know, either control your own destiny or you're going to lose that money. It didn't go anywhere. But uh, the one CEO who was passionate about it was Michael Nobrega, and he was the CEO of Omerth at the time. And it was him who basically said to me, uh, uh, hey, look, you think you're so smart and you've been coming after us. Why don't you do it yourself and come and join us and build this thing here? Because we don't know how to do this. And that's how I got there. 
So you complained yourself into a job that you weren't asking yes. for? No. And I actually spent six months saying, no, 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 no. Like I, 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 I was asked originally to be an advisor to Omer's, which was great. Was, I loved being at Deloitte. I loved, uh, I had no desire to leave, but you know, to be honest, it, it came to a point where it was so bad that this was really the only solution that I saw in Canada. And I actually felt a duty to go and do it. And if it didn't work out, Deloitte was amazing and said, hey, if it doesn't work out, come back. And so I really didn't have anything to lose. Wow. And so were there, I'm trying to think about the landscape just over a decade ago, were there any, I mean, who who were the VCs on the block at that point in Canada? Um, there were very few. So all of them were formed in the late 1990s. So really between 1995 and 2000. And so by the time of their last raise, say the last raise was 2000-ish, um, they slowed down their dry powder so that by 2005, they really had no more money to invest. So in that five-year period, no new venture fund was formed. And the folks that were around in the late 90s, they pretty much were not able to raise another fund. Um, so, you know, the only one that I remember was... Uh, 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 John Albright's fund. He was probably one of the only people in there. And, I, and I'm sure I'm missing a few folks, but I, you can count him almost on one hand. And it was, it, and the amount of capital they had was, was quite minuscule. So you you get this gig, as you said, it was six months. Finally, you take it, and uh, yep. it's Omer's Ventures. And do you remember what the uh, what, what what your starting capital was? Yeah, it was so it actually wasn't Omer's Ventures. It was actually, and it was really bizarre story. And some folks might remember this. It was 180 million Canadian dollars. And what they did is they did a joint venture with a Dutch very large pension fund called APG. And the the code name for it was called INCEF. Uh, which is investing in the knowledge economy of the future. So obviously not very strong marketers. And uh, and then when I joined, it was how do you build INCEF in this joint venture? And it was very clear it was untenable. So after three months of trying to see how to build that, I killed that and I said, how about we create uh, our own fund. And I mean, to be honest, I figured that out in about two weeks. So I spent the next two and a half months building Omer's Ventures uh, and then presented it to the CEO. And they kind of looked at me saying, hey, you planned this all along, didn't you? And I just said, look, you asked me how best to do this. So uh, it was uh, the great thing that Omers did do is instead of doing a joint venture for 180, they committed the full 180 million, which at the time was an ungodly amount of money uh, uh, for you know for 2011. Yeah, this is a, a phenomenal story. So, okay, so two questions. So you take this gig, you're now I guess title something like managing director of, of Omers Ventures. Um, yeah, they they wanted me to use CEO on it, but yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and the reason is actually this is a good question. 
They wanted it to be the CEO because they didn't know whether uh, that should be part of Omer's or not. And so it had a very bizarre relationship and what people didn't know. Now, I did it intentionally myself, but Omer's didn't know whether this thing's going to survive. So if they cut it loose, then I just have a fund that, you know, either I own or run or what have you. But be it more importantly, I wasn't convinced that they were going to be in it for the long haul. So I basically structured it in the traditional GPLP structure so that Omer's uh, invested 100% on fund one anyways, as an LP. Um, and why did I do this? Because it was structured to bring in new investors starting in fund two. And that was always my desire because, you know, first of all, more pools of capital, more diversification, more value. But if Omer's changed its mind and spun it out, I wouldn't be caught holding one single LP. So it was a little bit also of a protection situation, you know, and I was very clear about that so that I don't get caught uh, in the cold. I got it. So they're the LP for fund one with a hundred percent of the capital and the Correct. GP and the GP is who it's, it's uh, John the Ruffalo GP, Inc. No, the GP was also Omer's, but it was on a different chain of Omer's. Got so it. really all you had to do is uh, transfer the ownership of GP co say to me or to, you know, the management team and it just continues and no one knows what happened got it for fund two when i the first two investors that i brought in was cisco us and bemo and then that's what started the chain events and then by fund three um we were up to like we actually had demand for 50 percent of the fund we capped it at one third but it was very clear that omers was becoming the minority investor um just because of the demand uh, in the market that's really interesting. And we're, we're probably pretty into the weeds for a, a lot of our listeners right now, but I find <laughs> yes, it super interesting. Right. No, because you know what? I, I actually never realized that I, as an outsider, would just think, oh, this is just a division of, of Omers and it, it's just nope. there. You're, you're just an employee of Omers, but it actually wasn't that at all. No, no, not at all. I actually, they didn't even know what to, how to uh, 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 characterize us as. And you know, we used the word it was a platform. And in fact, I then formed Omer's Platform Investments. And it was to determine whether we build things that then might become part of Omer's, you know, fully in, or we spin it off and get it. But it, 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 was, it was more a reflection of uh, Omer just didn't know what it wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And there was lots of opposition to do anything other than the four traditional asset classes. Right. So you you got you have 180 million bucks, and they are trusting you to invest this. I mean, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. What qualified you, or in their mind, what qualified you, or even in your mind, to have a custodianship of this money when you know your background was as an accountant? What what gave you the confidence to actually deploy it? Well, uh, even though you know I was trained as an accountant starting in 1992, and the predecessor firm 
that I joined prior to Deloitte was was Arthur Anderson. I built the technology practice for Arthur Anderson way back when. And then when we merged into Deloitte, I just continued that. And, and so people are shocked that I'm actually a trained taxation expert. I was, I'm an international, I was an international tax advisor for largely M&As, IPOs, intellectual property management structures, all that sort of stuff. Um, but what it, but my real passion was I only advised the greatest technology companies in the world and the venture capitalists that funded them. So I became an, a, a, an advisor on that basis. And, and they didn't even know that I was a tax guy at the end of the day, because I didn't spend my time on that. So the advantage that I had was that I got to learn from the best companies and venture capitalists, not only, not in Canada, but around the world. And what it did, it gave me a pedestal to say, okay, I know what really works. I also know what doesn't work. So when I, when I built it, I had a very definitive, at least strategic plan based on all of that years of, of seeing. And, you know, the problem is, could you actually execute? Now, what 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 Michael Lobrega knew was we had a lot of clients that were very early stage. And instead of contributing capital at Deloitte, we contributed professional time and we had to make investment decisions on that professional time. Otherwise, you know, you're 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 getting zero money and building it for what? So in fact, I had at least 10 years of experience of determining which ones might be the winners and the losers. So what I discovered when I went to Omer's was like, oh my God, I'm still in the same professional services game. And this is the part that actually drives me a little bit nuts. Venture capitalists are professional services providers, period, end of story, nothing else. They're not gods. They're not, you know, futurists. They're not having some magical motion, you know, uh, potion. They are there to to support the entrepreneurs in identifying the great companies and and help them. And instead of getting an hourly fee or what have you, you're paid for the value or for the for the uh, investment of money. And so so. It really is the exact same business with just different forms. And by the way, the moment you think that way and you remember who you are serving, it actually really gets you on the right path on what you're really doing. And so that's, I, I think, being punched in the face for years and serving people and knowing who you're serving helped me and my team extremely well on getting onto the right foot from a venture capital perspective. That set you up. I want to talk about some of these uh, iconic companies that you backed in a second, but how long, 2010, you launched this thing. How long did it take to create the Omer's Ventures name where you had people knocking on your door tr- trying to get your money? Well, um, that is a, that's, a, that's a complicated question. So the beautiful thing about Omer's is that already the name recognition was there, at least so I thought. What I didn't 
expect was that it actually created negative goodwill in investing in technology companies. You know, you are a sleepy, bureaucratic, government-ish organization, and you think you're going to be able to uh, invest in these companies, you know, you know, dumb money, right? And boy, it took me, um, you know, at least a year to just deal with that issue. And it drove me nuts. Do you know what the turning point was? It was actually Ryan Holmes in investing in Hootsuite. So this is now two years in. And he actually used those words to us and said, and not only are you dumb money, basically, he didn't go that difficult, but I know what he meant. But you guys are slow money, too. And, you know, I want to close a deal in 30 days. And, you know, you know, stared at him in the face and basically said, yeah, we'll do it before 30 days. And it's like, you know, no problem. And then I quietly turned around to the team and go, hey, guys, can we fucking do this before 30 days? Because I have no clue whatsoever what they delivered it before 30 days. Once that happened, it started whipping like wildfire in the community. And then I can't remember the exact ordering. We did Desire to Learn. Uh, I think it was Hopper. Uh I can't remember. There was like a two or three of them in a row really fast. Yeah. Um, and then it was Shopify. Well, one second. Pa- pa- pause yeah. there, John, because I want to ask you about Shopify. And I remember, by the way, on that Hootsuite deal, because I was working on something with uh, Hearst Ventures at the time. I don't know if they were in yes, before. Yes, absolutely. After. They were in before. That's correct. Good. And I, and I remember wow. hearing... That, that, that's when I first caught wind and thought, oh, these Omer's guys, I remember that deal happened very fast. Uh, so that that's fantastic. So you're... Okay, Sorry, so so you, can, can I mention on that? Please. That's an interesting bite. I, I didn't know you had that. Uh, we got heavily and roundly criticized on that. Okay. And this is how warped the Canadian uh, ecosystem was. So we do that deal. We do it under 30 days. By the way, that was a $20 million check. 100% secondary of common shares. But, you know, the valuation, you know, compared to today was like nothing. But it was still high. And I remember, and, and the company was growing like stink at the time. And we had to make a call to do 100% secondary. Now, like, it's like on 20 million, what are you talking about? That was like, I just gave somebody $10 billion the way the market had lost their minds on us. And we had every VC basically going, see, I told you they're dumb money. Right. Now, secondary, just to to break down for the listener, secondary means that they come with less preferences. Is that basically what you're saying? No, we bought other investors out, including Hearst. Got it. Because it's a bit of a long story, but they were causing grief and we stepped in. So the money doesn't go into the company because the company wasn't burning. Imagine that this was at a time that companies were actually profitable. Like it's craziness, right? (laughs) Anyways, why was this a key marking point? Our competitors thought we lost our mind and roundly criticizing us. And, you know, we heard it all. 
And, you know, to be honest, I was like, holy Jesus, I'm going to be going to calling Deloitte soon because I'm going to I'm going to lose my job. The entrepreneurs, you know what their reaction was? Holy shit. We finally have a Silicon Valley in Canada. This is incredible. And that is what went wild on us and why we just swept the table on all of the great opportunities at the time in Canada. Amazing. That, that, that's so cool. And that takes us to um, probably the most iconic company in Canada right now, which is Shopify. So yes. what was your intro to Shopify and what, what made you write that check? So the intro, so Shopify was originally funded uh, by Bessemer uh, back in, I think, 2009 or 2000. I can't, can't remember the exact date. Um, and so Omer's Ventures wasn't formed yet. But in 2011, I haven't made an investment yet. Um, the first investment that we made, we only made one in 2011. That was Wave. Um, you know, it was called Wave Accounting then. Shopify came to us for a small investment of $3 million. And what happened is Bessemer had a huge chunk of uh, Shopify, and they had to replace an existing investor because they were going to go offside on CCPC purposes, which is basically, you know, uh, you can't have more than 50% of Shopify owned by a uh, non-Canadians. They came to us and to two, I believe, two other Canadian VCs. And they said, um, would you like to be an investor in Shopify? And we were like, yeah, we've been watching Shopify. I was watching it back in Deloitte days. And they said, one condition, uh, no board seat, no observer seat, no nada. Uh, Take the money and go. And I had to make a decision. Here's a company that I adored already, and it was still very, very early. Um, but how could I make the first investment being like not even passive, being a hedge fund? And now all of a sudden, you remember the dumb comments, you know, the dumb money comments? I would reinforce that and I would be spending an inordinate amount of time explaining that. So I could not do that. So we declined. So I've never you know, really told that story of how we declined the investment because we refused to do that without we, we were going to accept, just give us an observer seat, but we just couldn't do it. Mm. And, and it was painful for me. And then I started watching that company just go, just starting to rocket. And one of our team members, uh, he has since passed away, Derek Smith, um, when, when I hired him, I asked him, can you do me one favor? There's one investment that really bugs me, and that was Shopify. Would you mind chasing them for me and staying in front? And he did an amazing job. And, and what had happened in 2013, we started to have some meetings with uh, Toby and Harley, and this time, you know, you can just see the market starting to go. And this still, 10 years basically later, still the greatest um, investment that I have seen, you know, before I wanted to make the investment, still the greatest. And it's a kind of a, I think, a one in 10 year opportunity. So long story short, 
Toby and I met, what was supposed to be for about 30 minutes at a coffee shop uh, as part of the grand opening of the Toronto office at Spadina and Queen area. And, uh, you know, I didn't know Toby very well at all. And, you know, our 30 minutes turned into two hours and 30 minutes. I fell in love with him. Uh, I, we didn't even talk about Shopify. We talked about this, you know, a German immigrant coming to Canada and wanting to change the world, you know, for Canada. And I was like, I can't believe a guy like this. We agreed to do the deal in that coffee meeting. It almost feels like, you know, you know, 30 years ago style of investing. And that deal, we had to close within 30 days because um, every investor in the Valley wanted that investment. And Toby, uh, I give him unbelievable kudos. Uh, he basically said, we want a Canadian in here, not another uh, foreign firm. And, you know, he was, you know, you know, just unbelievable in allowing us in very ex- expedited manner to, to, to hit that check. And at the time, and this is where we said, why don't we do a monster fundraise? And I said, let's do a $100 million fundraise and I will take half through Omer's. What he didn't know and I didn't tell him is that it, that breached concentration limits for the fund, but I didn't give a crap because I just never seen anything like this. So we breached everything in order to hit that deal. Wow, I guess uh, so. A, c- a couple, a couple takeaways there. A, uh, trying to get deals done in thirty days seems to be the way to go because <laughs> it's happened twice. You will, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, thirty days, but not you know thirty minutes, which is going on right now. But yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, do you know these numbers might be uh, out of your head at this point? Do you know what that investment was and what it turned into in Shopify? Well. It was the it was the last investment they did before going public. So, uh, what I will say is that the valuation on a post money basis, so inclusive of the hundred million, was well below a billion dollars. And the valuation, you know, I, I know it's 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 taken a little bit of a dip and hit hit two hundred billion dollars. So you can just run the math right there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there's so many stories to share about uh, about Omers, and you have so many. Uh, there are so many logos on on the site still. I'm guessing at this point, it's got to be a couple billion uh, under management at Omers today, right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Assuming you use the uh, the the values of the companies, yes, that's correct. Sure. So you leave. Uh, you and and the idea. So I guess two questions: Why did you leave, and and why Mavericks, which is your current uh, firm? Yeah. So so you know, at the time coming in in 2011, you could see that the technology cycle that gave rise to that incredible you know 10 year run was really as a result of technological breakthroughs uh, and coming together of technologies in and around 2008. And it became clear to me uh, about 2017 that the market has uh, changed dramatically. And I started to see the snippets in 2015, but by 2017, tested um, the thesis. And basically what was happening was you started to see 
the application of those technologies that were being funded by all the VCs, crossing the chasm to all of the other industries uh, that that are part of the economy, you know, whether it's manufacturing, healthcare, financial services, etc. And I'm not talking about companies that are built from a tech stack up and then competing in the space. I am talking about traditional businesses that have recognized, uh-oh, I will not be able to compete unless I embrace technologies to make my business bigger, faster, better, uh, cheaper, and, and with more customer insights. And as you started to see this chasm, and I'm going to use Canada where it was much, much more vivid, you had a bunch of investors in private equity that were focused in solely on buyout private equity. And in buyout, the you know, you, you, you don't care about growth so much. You care about predictable EBITDA. You want it to grow a little bit, but you want it very, very predictable. And you're really doing a financial transaction. And then you have venture that was largely focused in around classic technology companies although it's 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 migrated a little bit but these are companies that have no product market fit yet or little etc but in between you had all of these companies that were rising that were not classically built technology companies that were growing at a fast clip and they weren't getting funded by anybody and how did i see that i saw that by so many opportunities were coming our way at Omer's, largely because of Omer's ventures, that our private equity group said, oh, no, that's not a control deal. No, that, that growth is too high, too volatile. Oh, they don't have EBITDA in order for us to debt leverage, so no thanks. And I was like smacking myself in the head saying, seriously, guys, these are incredible companies. So what happened? All went to U.S investors. And in the US, there is a third asset class in between the two, and it's called growth private equity, as distinguished from late stage venture. That's still venture. And in this growth private equity with some damn good US firms. And I decided we can't lose these opportunities in Canada. And so I started the building of Omer's growth equity. And I got the approval to seed it with $500 million, uh, hiring a team to get that all going. But it also became apparent to me that this opportunity is going to be very large. Uh, and, uh, and what better way to take advantage of the opportunity, but to also uh, be very focused in exploiting it in the maximum way possible by building my own firm that is predicated on that thesis. And that's what gave rise to Maverick's private equity. Um, it, and having no constraints whatsoever to take advantage of this hole in the marketplace and frankly, build it, you know, uh, you know, on a team with, you know, and build it in the vision that I've always hoped for for a long time. So when you talk about growth, I think you called it growth private equity. Is that the soft banks and tiger globals of the world or, or that it's not that? No, no, no. They, they would be late stage venture. Although 
those two firms cross over a little bit. Those are the firms that uh, are best at it. Bain Capital. Uh, these are my view, by the way. So right. not others. Many will agree. Uh, Warburg Pincus, Madison Dearborn, Summit, General Atlantic, Insight. And some of the large private equity firms have recognized this. So the first one, if I recall, was TPG Growth. So it's not the bio firms. So what started to happen, and that's how you watch to see them missing it. Uh, Blackstone has got their own growth. BlackRock has. These massive firms are all creating a growth private equity strategy. And so that strategy is, you know, in my view and under my mind, when I came to build Omer's Ventures, I was trying to disrupt the Canadian venture capital model by importing the U.S. model, to be blunt. I stole everything. Yeah. Mavericks is doing what I did to the VC market, to the private equity market. Because they're getting caught flat-footed because of the model. And I am investing in these companies that the, the buyout folks would die to go to. And the one great firm in the U.S. that I think understands this at the buyout level extremely well is Vista, where they really look in this market, but in Avista's case, they largely love the buyout world. So think of it this way. I'm investing five years before Vista would, and maybe I sell them to Vista. Yeah, I, I, it make, makes total sense. And and you know I've seen this done in the real estate space as well. You're taking a model that is established in the US market, it's proven, and you're importing it. And also, you know, you're doing a, a wonderful service because as you mentioned, these are businesses that would otherwise go to the, the U.S. for funding, and you're keeping right. them here. So, keeping what here. are the what are the major themes then that you're looking at? What what are the kinds of companies? I think I heard you say something like you want to find the next ten Shopify's. Uh, yes, but, I, but I'm guessing they won't look anything like Shopify. So, what, what no, are those themes? No, no. And in terms of the uh, the Shopify's, what the comment there is, it's not about. You know, them being a technology company, it's about them being based in Canada and large and dominant and global. That's the issue, right? That's what we need in the economic impact to Canada, having more of those kind of companies. So we have five focused industries, financial services, healthcare, transportation, logistics, uh, retail, and something we call live, work, play, and learn. But in there, these are traditional companies. When I say that, these are not tech entrepreneurs. These just happen to be entrepreneurs who know their business inside and out, and but but understand the power of technology. So there must be a disruption thesis, but in the confines of the business that they're seeking to 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 operate it. In terms of um, our thesis, we're not taking technology risk at all. Uh, these are businesses that have clients. The, the average business in our pipeline uh, has $100 million of revenues already. None of them have negative EBITDA. Uh, in fact, some of them have very high EBITDA. Um, 
Uh, generally, there's no prior capital. There might be some angels, but no institutions. These are founder bootstrapped or they have debt financing from a bank, what have you. But, they, and, but they're still growing at a very high velocity, somewhere between 20 and 50%. And, and they're looking for an investor who will take a minority position and help them to continue to grow and scale globally and to still enjoy that fast rate of growth. So we're seeking to take these companies that are 100 million plus to a billion plus, but not just through massive growth and and hopefully profitability come later. This is a profitable, sustainable growth to the future. So they build their place here. Yeah. So it sounds... It's it's a really interesting thesis. And it sounds quite different from... uh, It sounds totally different from a venture capital thesis because as you said... You're not taking a VC or a technology risk, rather. Um, I mean, it's almost like sort of like what Berkshire Hathaway does, although I'm sure your, your operating model is quite different. You're looking for yeah. profitable businesses. Uh, would the return profile be quite different then from VC? Yes, it is. Yes. So so it's a different portfolio construction model. So in, in venture capital, you cannot bet on a particular investment. The way you do it is you say, I'm going to do 15 to 20 deals that are going to kind of look like this. I'm going to have a failure rate of X. I'm going to have one massive outlier that will pay for all of the crap that I invested in. (laughs) That's how it works, right? It's a home run hitting business. Private equity, on the other hand, is you will afford maybe one failure in your portfolio. By the way, failure is not even a zero. Failure is you didn't return any money back. So yeah. what happens though, like in in the venture world, you know, you really hope for that 20, 30, 50, 100 X or to cover all of your mistakes. That does not happen in private equity. If it does, it's like, oh my, that, that's a, a once in a millennium <laughs> sort of return. Yeah. Right. But you you your target is to 3x your capital. But here's the difference. When a venture capitalist who puts in a million bucks and says, Wow, I just shut out the lights, I 20x it, which is a big number. Well, you got a profit you know, of $19 million in that example, less all of the costs, less time value of money. And it's good. So it's a good solid return, but it doesn't change the world. Now, if you're investing like we do 75, $100 million and the risk on a risk adjusted basis, you know, if you can do a three X and the odds are that if you really did a horrible job, you're just going to get your money back. So the risk has been cut. The, the higher end has been cut, but you can return three times your money. And I'm talking without any leverage for the moment. Then all of a sudden, you just made, in my example, $150 or $200 million profit on top of what you have invested in. And now you're returning some pretty significant cash back to your investors. So so if you could concentrate your portfolio and find the real you know, opportunities and deploy significant cash, the actual 
ability to distribute material dollars goes up. Buyout does the same thing with one additional switch or a hitch there. Yes, they're not going to have as great of an opportunities in terms of the of the future opportunity, but they take debt leverage. So, so they're also getting an arbitrage on the interest rate of the debt versus you know the return on the equity. So it juices up their returns. So when you look at the return profile of growth private equity and buyout private equity, you will see a very similar pattern. They just make money. Uh, venture has massive volatility. You can make insane money, but it's a very, very small percentage that are doing that. Right. So I know we just have a couple minutes left. I, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, there's so much. That I'm in my perception as an outsider. I'm not a professional VC, and when I when I but I have a lot of friends who are in that business, and a lot of folks who are raising money. Um, it seems to me that when a company gets a lot of buzz around it, there's a lot of folks that want to put money in. And the fundamentals maybe don't always support that. So my question to you is, is, is first of all, is that true? Is that, is that the case? And how do you, as, a, as, a, as an investor, make sure that you don't get swept up and then turn around and go, oh, geez, this is not what we thought it was going to be? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, answer, the short answer is yes. It's all about FOMO right now. It, everybody's got FOMO. And it, I don't know what's been uh, more viral, COVID or FOMO uh, in investing in tech these days. And I think a lot of people have completely lost their minds. It, it is a mathematical calculation, really, on you know the imagining of a discounted cash flow. Now, you can't be overly scientific about it, but... You know, when you started to let me just use historical uh, uh, averages just for a moment. So, uh, you know, I'll use SaaS software businesses because this is where it's most egregious. The long-term historical mean has been valuation and it's a proxy of three to seven times forward revenues, with an outlier at about ten. Now, what you're supposed to do is look at the quality of that income. How sticky is it? Uh, what are the costs associated? You know, what's the economic return? Lots of lots of factors, but that's the proxy. Today, the average is approximately 20 times. That's the average. Two years ago, it shot to 15. So it doubled the highest end on the average of the LIR. Outliners in the last two years, it's gone from 15 to 20. We have consistently seen 30, 40, 50. Uh, I think the winner in our office is 100 times forward, and somebody's paid for that. Now, when you run the math and just say, do you know using the model that the company gave you, never mind whether that is even reasonable? You're investing in a company that, you know, I'm making this up, $5 million in revenue. And in four years, they got to hit $5 billion, Okay, <laughs> It's literally this egregious. So you kind of go backwards and you kind of say, like, when has this happened? Oh, yeah, right. Never. Um, and people are putting the money in. And it's absolutely crazy. 
And a lot of it is predicated on the greater fool theory. And that's not what my investors pay me for. And it's it's a theory based on hope. Now, Cambridge Associates has done a great analysis on the last quarter of venture returns, which was an insane quarter. But uh, they tied the returns to the SPAC markets, basically. They said the IPO markets. And now that that's been eviscerated, right, all of a sudden, the public market multiples, and you, you've been following this, are starting to crash down and not on a small slope, like we're talking 50% slope. Now, and, and let's just talk late stage venture. And late stage venture is priced on a highly correlated basis to the multiples in the public markets. So here is the thing. When somebody says to me, oh, yeah, but in the private markets, we don't have to mark down our valuations as fast. Oh, yeah, that's right, because you can manipulate it. The problem in the public markets is that it shows up in one day. In a private market, it might show up in two or one quarter or whatever, because you're being sneaky about it. I know the game, right? So when you with the the late stage investors are sitting on assets that are probably two to three times the value. And you know, you're not recognizing it yet because you hope that the markets would turn right back and then you could foist it upon the unsuspecting public. That's what happens. So as an investor, you got to stick to your guns and do your proper valuations. And I'll tell you right now, and, and things that we're looking at, we're about to announce our uh, first couple of deals. You're at the highest end of the range in this market, for sure. If you're not, there's a technical term for it. It's called a shitty asset. <laughs> and so, but you are at write the that high. down. Yes. And, and you're going to pay up, but it better be within your range. And the moment is not, you say bye-bye asset. And you got to have the intestinal fortitude to do that. And those that are insecure or have FOMO might not do that. And I'll give you one exception. In the US in particular, there are some businesses, but it's, it's not hundreds. It's, you know, is it single digits? Is it double digits? Who knows? That are so, that move so incredible that it didn't matter if you overpaid for that asset earlier on. It just doesn't matter because the return was, so instead of a thousand X return, you got a, you know, a 200 X return. Like, does that really matter? The problem is, that that doesn't exist in Canada, really. The greatest return of investing in the last decade in Canada has been Shopify. And John, how many Shopify's has there been in Canada in 10 years? Well, in 10 one. years, one. One. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the point. And that's why discipline in this kind of a market, I think, is tantamount. But it takes... like. You know, I bite my lip a lot and, uh, you know, I, I need to get chapstick uh, because sometimes you kind of go, you know, are you being too cheap or not? Or are you being disciplined? And there's a very, very fine line on that. Yeah. 
Well, this was, this has been fantastic, John. I had I had like another two pages of questions for you, but maybe we'll do a part two another time. <laughs> All right. Uh, this was great. So, where can people find you and and learn more about Mavericks? Uh, go to our website, mavericks.pe.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and we'll be we'll be watching. All right. Take care, John. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.